Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight it is December 27th of 2012, and tonight our guest is harm reduction pioneer Donald Grove. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Well, I see our guest, Donald Grove, has just arrived in the room. Donald, how are you doing this evening? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, I want to start, I want to ask you... You have a long, long history with harm reduction. Uh, tell us a little bit about ACT UP. What is ACT UP and what was ACT UP? And tell us uh, how you got involved with that. Okay. ACT UP, uh, ACT UP is actually an acronym. stands for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And what happened, uh, sort of the history of ACT UP is that it started in New York City and it was a result of... Uh, the lack of attention to the burgeoning AIDS epidemic in the mid-'80s. You know, uh, initially uh, some people got together and they founded Gay Men's Health Crisis, but after after the founding of Gay Men's Health Crisis, there, there was this growing need to address the... the, uh, the uh, the lack of uh, let's put it this way a lot of the doctors were untrained the hospitals were unprepared to deal with sort of the scale of the numbers of people with aids coming in they didn't know how to provide the correct kind of care and not only that but structurally speaking there was a lack of, of uh, funding to address sort of the scale of the epidemic not just in the gay community but in all the communities that it was affecting at the time and act up grew out of uh, out of a response to sort of the failure institutionally of uh, New York City, but also eventually New York State and the federal government to respond to sort of the scale of the AIDS crisis. And it took a long time. Act Up, Act Up chapters began all over the country pretty quickly, starting in 1987, but it took a long time to see uh, the real accomplishments and I would say that needle exchange programs in, in many parts of the country are directly the result of ACT UP advocacy or ACT UP collaboration with other groups. Um, and also what I would say is that by the time in 1992 that Ryan White funding came down, the Ryan White Care Act, which was uh, legislation and money from the federal government to provide AIDS care, it was ACT UP, it really was ACT UP that had created uh, the demand for the services that Ryan White began to fund. ACT UP had essentially uh, defined the standard of care. And what was significant about ACT UP was that it was, by and large, an organization of people living with AIDS. And this is what they were doing even while they were dying. This was about sort of struggling to get your own care, you know, as an advocate. Um, and many of the people who were involved in ACT UP uh, in the, in
the Ryan White Care Act began to fund uh, care at the on the scale that it actually matched what was happening uh, uh, in terms of the caseload of the numbers of people with AIDS. There still weren't the treatments that that were necessary that we have now, and that's another place where ACT UP was pivotal was in essentially pushing the National Institutes of Health and uh, um, NIDA, the National Institute for, I don't even know what NIDA stands for, I'm sorry, but uh, pushing these kinds of groups, the CDC, uh, on what the science said and and sort of creating a voice for the people affected by the disease in the direction that the research was taking. And that was really, really significant, and we, I was part of it. We would go and literally shut down pharmaceutical company operations, you know, take over their offices, shut down their factories and things like that because there was so much, you know, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies were so directly implicated in uh, steering research funding towards uh, what they saw as, as most viable or most profitable, and we sort of pushed uh, them in the direction that was actually going to be the, the most beneficial to people with AIDS. So that was really what ACT UP was about. It was always seen as a gay organization because it was predominantly uh, gay men, but it was never a gay organization. It was an organization of people with AIDS. And uh, um, and so that's, that's a very, very cursory sort of uh, description of what ACT UP was. And in 1990... After a lot of uh, pushing from from some people, ACT UP at first was was not at ACT UP New York that is was not necessarily willing to take on needle exchange. And there were three votes on the floor of ACT UP before they agreed that needle exchange was a form of direct action that ACT UP could could take up. And uh, in 1990, six people uh, did needle exchange right right in my neighborhood, right on the corner of Delancey and Essex, um, and were arrested, and it was delivered. It was it was to create a test case. And uh, indeed, the uh, the judge, uh, Judge Drager, decided that uh, it was not breaking the law to provide syringes to drug uh, injectors because uh, there was a compelling medical necessity. And so that laid the groundwork for ACT UP to continue for the next two years to do needle exchange, always in collaboration with other organizations here in New York City. It was never just ACT UP. ACT UP was who did the uh, initial uh, sort of civil disobedience that led to this court decision. But after that, ACT UP was collaborating with all kinds of groups. I know here on the Lower East Side, definitely up in the Bronx, it was never just ACT UP. But ACT UP was instrumental in making it happen. ACT UP had the, had, had the funds and things like that to actually get syringe exchange started as as a as a political action in New York City. And it was another, basically, from the time of that civil disobedience until, uh, uh, which would have been in the fall of 1990, until uh, needle exchange became legal under New York State, under the New York State Public Health Law, and funded in the uh, um, in the summer of 1992. It was roughly, it was about a year and a half, a year and three quarters between that, that action and legal needle exchange. It wasn't like it took 10 years or something, but uh, um, 
I'd say that in in many ways the the struggles have never ended in exchange programs in terms of establishing their own legitimacy, legitimacy, in terms of advocating for the the most effective ways to operate. There are still still struggles uh, even to get needle exchange uh, programs launched. in, in all the places where they're needed in New York State has has been an, an uphill struggle. But the initial struggle just to make it legal was something ACT UP was heavily involved in, and that's how I got involved in it. Um, and I I started right after those arrests happened. I started in the fall of uh, um, 1990 and uh, continued to work and do needle exchange on the Lower East Side first as an activist, and then when, when it became a not-for-profit after it was legal, then I was a volunteer, then I was an advocate for all the programs. My first job was as an advocate for all the programs in the city. At that time, there were only five, and by the time I was uh, uh, done uh, with that job, there were six. Um, now there are, I think, 13 programs in the city and another uh, eight upstate Um then I worked as an outreach worker at the Lower East Side. Then I worked as an assistant to the executive director at the Lower East Side. Then I worked as a data specialist at the Lower East Side. Then I worked with Beth Israel to do a survey of all the needle exchange programs in the country. Then I worked for Harm Reduction Coalition for five years and another three years as a consultant. Then I've, Since then, I've worked for the state uh, as a consultant uh helping them with technical issues around evaluation and data. So I've been involved um, in needle exchange through one way or another, all originally because of ACT UP. Um, And I still see a huge need for that kind of advocacy and and, uh, activism, not just in the world of uh, harm reduction, but in the world of, uh, of AIDS care. Well, I was reading a little bit of an interview that you did, and I'm going to ask you some questions about some things that I was reading there. Um, did you have to mark needles uh, at one point? Yes, we absolutely did. There was uh, um, at the time that we first became legal. Well, no, that it it predates legal. We were doing this when we were act up, and the idea was that there was some desire to evaluate the actual idea of exchange. In other words, that you weren't supposed to give uh, people uh, sterile syringes except in, in, in sort of a direct one-for-one for the for the syringes, uh, the used syringes they provided to you. And not only that, but you, for some reason, you wanted to see whether the syringes you provided to them were the ones they were bringing back. And so uh, we, on the Lower East Side, we marked all our syringes, we put a little blue band around them, a little band of blue paint up in the up in the Bronx. Uh, I think they painted them green, and out in Brooklyn, they painted them red. And after we were legal, <laughs> we, we had to continue to mark them in the, and in the belief that somehow someone was going to study this, but no one did, and eventually we said, this is unhygienic. We're handling these syringes more than they need to be handled. Uh, simply to mark them all, and there isn't any evidence that anyone is going to like actually use this information in any effective way. So uh, we leaned very heavily on the state to say this marking requirement is is uh, onerous, and the state agreed, and we, we stopped doing it. And that was all within maybe the first year of being legal. I think yep. we stopped marking syringes even within the first six or seven months. 
Yeah, I so saw you mentioned that your cats wanted to play with the syringes that you were marking. Yes, well, this is an example of just how unhygienic it was. You know, if this is, you know, we weren't. Ex- no matter what uh, people may want to think about syringe exchange as a public health endeavor during the period where it was activism, we were marking syringes meant that I was painting them and laying them out on newspaper on my floor in my apartment, and the cats. Well, you know what cats are like. So this is this is what I mean when I say this is distinctly unhygienic, and I would have to shut the cats in the bathroom while the paint dried. That kind of a thing. That was, that was, you know, this is what HIV prevention for drug injectors in New York City looked like in 1991. You know, that's what it looked like, people painting syringes and drying them on the floor of their apartment. Well, for our audience that might not be familiar with this, uh, why, why is it not a good idea to do one-for-one syringe exchange? Wow, that is something that uh, a great deal of my harm reduction uh, career has focused on, uh, you know, the arguments around this. Basically, the you have to look at what is causing the epidemic. And the epidemic is caused by a scarcity of sterile syringes by people who are uh, uh, injecting drugs. And as a result, they reuse their own and are also willing to use other people's uh, used syringes. And the first thing I would point to in in sort of how the drug war is structured is to say that a, uh, there is a law which makes it illegal, it is against the law to possess syringes unless you have a prescription for them or obtain them under certain circumstances. Those laws have lessened somewhat over the years. One of the ways you can now get syringes is through a syringe exchange program. You can also buy them 10 at a time over the counter, this kind of thing. But back in the early 90s, it was uh, unlawful to possess a syringe if you didn't have a prescription. And that law was in place specifically to create ways to arrest drug users. That's what it was for. It was not a deterrent. It was not supposed to be a deterrent to using drugs, but the problems, it was like paraphernalia laws. The reason these laws are in place is because law enforcement was not satisfied with simply making the possession of the drugs themselves illegal and argued to the legislature that they needed to also make uh, drug paraphernalia illegal in order to facilitate uh, somehow stopping drug use. But what we see is that the laws making syringe possession unlawful did not stop people from using drugs. If they were going to stop people from using drugs, we wouldn't have an epidemic of shared syringes by drug users. And instead, what we have is a, a we had a huge epidemic of HIV. One out of every two drug injectors was infected with HIV uh, by the time we started. Uh, um, by the time syringe exchange became legal. And we still have a huge epidemic of hepatitis C, which is even more easily transmitted through shared injection equipment than uh, HIV was. So let's look at that. I, I say all of that as a preamble to saying, if we have a shortage of sterile syringes in the population of drug injectors in the first place, and all we're going to do is trick one for one, in other words, I'm only going to give you one syringe for each one that you dispose, then I'm not actually changing the volume of syringes that are in circulation among drug injectors. And the idea that there should be syringes in circulation among drug injectors in the first place is appalling. 
so what we need is to make sure that drug injectors have all the sterile syringes they need so that they never share syringes. And rather than connecting uh, uh, distribution of sterile syringes to disposal and saying you can only have what you dispose of here, what we also need to do is make sure the drug injectors have adequate disposal resources where they need them. If people are concerned, for instance, that sterile that, that used syringes are, are going to wind up on the streets or sandboxes or things like that, the number one reason that would happen is because that uh, you know that syringe is somehow incriminating, and the drug injector wants to get rid of it so that it's not in his possession, rather than dispose of it safely and in a way that, and, and encourage that disposal by making sure that people don't want to hold on to their syringes because they have more. You know, they have what they need in order to inject, in order to not share, and they have what they need in order to dispose of safely. Those are the things that are needed to safeguard the public health. And instead, the the one-for-one model essentially offers no needs assessment. I can't say to you how many how many syringes do you actually need until I see you again when you come to my program. Instead, I say, well, your needs assessment is you gave me two, then you can have two. And that doesn't that doesn't address the fact that this person may be injecting, you know, 15 or 16 times a week and also sharing syringes with his wife and with his friends. In other words, this person needs 15 or 16 syringes if, if, if I'm going to see him once a week. And not only that, but his wife needs however many she needs and his friends need however many they need. That's a needs assessment which needs to be done in order to make sure they all have sterile syringes, and instead I'm giving him two because he brought me two, that's not solving anything. So we, but I would say that the state has over the years been incredibly reasonable about expanding and increasing the numbers of syringes we are allowed to provide regardless of what people bring to dispose, because that is, we have been arguing that, that point for many, many years, and it's been proven that, you know, that basically the person who is most at risk for sharing someone else's used syringe is the person who doesn't have any syringes. So, for instance, if you come to the needle exchange with nothing and we have strictly one-for-one, one, I can't give you any, and that's actually like taking the person who is most at risk and not intervening at all. So the, the whole rationale behind one-for-one one syringe exchange, I think, is really based more on a, a public fear of the idea of encouraging drug use as though somehow if 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 I give you anything you don't already have, that might be seen as accepting accepting or tolerating your drug use when what I want you to know is that I condemn you for that drug use. But but what I would argue is is first of all it's not addressing the needs of the epidemic and in second in second place, I don't think that any drug user who who is using a syringe exchange program believes that, that the public accepts their drug use in any way, that drug user is still, you know, haunted on the streets by the police, uh, you know, daily derided in the press, all of these kinds of things. Drug users are perfectly aware that society condemns and dislikes their drug use, and providing them with sterile syringes doesn't change that in any way, but it does protect, protect the community. So I think the whole rationale behind One for One is based on a public fear, which can only be combated through education. And in the meantime, One for One syringe exchange is is not logical from a public health standpoint. 
Well, I think a lot of people get afraid that they will see used syringes everywhere if you give people an unlimited supply, but that's not what we that's not what we've seen. No, it's not what we see, and I would say that uh, um, you know that's first of all that's a, a legitimate fear, <laughs> a legitimate fear. You don't want syringes around, but I would say two things. I would say since the inception of uh, syringe exchange in New York City, we have seen fewer syringes on the streets. There's, you know, there uh, that there are fewer uh, reports of syringes being found, you know, in, in, in doorways or that kind of stuff. And I would say that that is because syringe exchange programs themselves put a lot of emphasis on, on making sure that that doesn't happen and talking to participants. It's also because we provide people with other ways to dispose. We give them waste containers uh, and the kinds of things they need. So, so it, it isn't happening, at least it's not happening anymore on the Lower East Side, um, because once upon a time that was very, very controversial, and you had the community board uh, screaming at the syringe exchange program, and, and the community board hasn't said boo in uh, in nearly 15 years about it, because by and large it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking to a new community board now on the Lower East Side because we're trying to extend the syringe exchange waiver, and they... They seem to have that fear again, and you know, I was telling them, you know, what we do is we actually get syringes off the street, so it will be cleaner. So you should welcome us. Right, absolutely, and not only that, but I really admired uh, the executive director back uh, of the needle, uh, the Lower East Side Needle Exchange, back in I think he was first started in 1998, and he was there until like 2002 or three. His name was Drew Kramer, and when he when he was at a community board meeting and they said, you only care about, like, disposing of the syringes that you give out and you don't you don't care what happens if people didn't, you know, uh, get them from the needle exchange program or something, something very strange like that. He said, I consider it, you know, if there is a, a syringe anywhere on the streets in our neighborhood, I consider it my responsibility. And that's kind of the, the point of view that I think needs to be taken. We are here to respond, not just to you know, the epidemic of sharing syringes, but to the larger issues of, of safe disposal. You know, in in uh, in Australia there's a uh, there's a suburb of suburb of Melbourne called uh Yera. And Yera had a very interesting response when uh, um when there began to be complaints about uh, syringes being found in public areas. Yera's response was to increase access to safe syringe disposal in public places, like in restrooms and things like that. They put waste containers in, in, in public areas, and the problem went away. In other words, the issue is not that people are ditching syringes, but that they don't have any, any good way to get rid of them. The other heart group to win over is the police. You know, when you have to convince mm-hmm. the police, you have to convince the police that syringe exchange is in their best interests. Supporting syringe exchange means that, you know, if 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 there are fewer HIV-positive or Hep-C-positive people, uh, injectors, out there on the streets, that means when you're encountering them, it is if you do get stuck with a syringe, the likelihood that you're going to be infected is far less. But better yet is to make sure that drug users know that that syringe is not going to be treated as something incriminating. 
then they, if they know that they're not going to get busted because they have a syringe, they know that they're not going to get busted because that syringe is seen as proof that they're a criminal, then they would be willing to, like, take their syringes out of their pockets themselves. They would be willing to to dispose of them safely instead of ditch them when they're afraid they're going to be arrested. These are these are the issues, and those are drug war issues. This is not a problem created by drug users. This is a problem created by the idea that for some reason a syringe is unlawful. For some reason someone who has a syringe who is practicing sterile injection and protecting his family and his community by practicing sterile injection is is doing something so evil and so wrong by having that syringe at all that the police should arrest him for it. And even though the police don't charge, you know, they, they you know, if you get busted by the cops and you have a set of works on you, a, a syringe on you, chances are they're not going to bust you for syringe possession because nowadays the laws uh, have all been changed and it's very difficult to make a a, a charge of syringe possession stick. But the the main issue is under quality of life law enforcement. Well, okay, they found syringes on you. They don't, you know, they can't charge you with syringe possession, but they'll figure out something else to take you down for. In other words, the the um, the drug user is still basically very very aware that that syringe could be incriminating. It is, and that that's still going to drive people not having sterile syringes when they need to have them. And using other people's if they ha- if they have it, if that's what's available to use. So the the drug war and the HIV epidemic are very closely linked. And getting syringes off the streets is not just about providing safe disposal, but it's also about persuading the police that a syringe should ne- never be treated as something incriminating. Now. This brings us to another historical piece. Um, early on with syringe exchange, weren't the uh, police targeting the clients of the syringe exchange? And how did uh, you bring about a change in that? That's very difficult to uh, um, pinpoint. That I personally, back in 1994, shortly after uh, Giuliani took office, um, I began documenting the, the number of cases of, of arrest or harassment that, that people were experiencing for uh, uh, with police over over possession of syringes they got from the syringe exchange program, and the the work that I did at that time uh, resulted in the the first of many change revisions in police orders uh, in the language on that goes with the syringe exchange program ID cards. And, uh, which uh, which explains that uh, that syringe exchange program participants are lawfully you know supposed to be able to possess their syringes that kind of thing. The, uh, but what I look back and I see, and I think I talked about that in that interview you read. <coughs> that was I thought it was about uh, cops targeting syringe exchange program participants. I think that may have been true to a certain extent. I also think it was simply quality of life law enforcement. Cops were out targeting everyone who who they believed looked like they ought to be arrested, you know, which was the started when when Giuliani came into office and continues to this day. It's a particular style of law enforcement uh, that I think is, is completely wrong-headed. But I don't think they were targeting syringe exchange participants as much as they were targeting everybody who looked like they might be homeless, everybody who looked like, you know, they might be... Uh, 
in a neighborhood they shouldn't be in, you know, or doing something they shouldn't be doing. And, you know, they would come up with something to charge you with, even if it wasn't syringe possession. But I did document a huge number of uh, uh, cases where someone was charged with syringe possession because that's what the cops found. That was the easiest charge they could make. And even though we had uh, a syringe exchange with legal, the cops were not interested in it. Even the DAs. Now, here's an interesting question. Um, we had already published, the state had published, on how the average number of syringes that a participant was getting at any given transaction in New York State at that time, not just in New York City, was 13. In, in other words, you know, the average number of syringes you were going to leave the program with in 1993 was 13 syringes. But the DA's office had a policy that possession of more than one syringe they were instantly going to prosecute is indication of intent to sell. In other words, you know, possession of more than one syringe was possession was more than personal use. There's this personal use standard in, in the drug war that, you know, what you have for yourself isn't as criminal as what you have because you're going to sell it. And so possession of more than one syringe was an indication of intent to sell syringes. And so I had to, like, you know, meet with the DA's office and say, you can't do this anymore. And uh, as the, the DA's don't ever actually publicly discuss what their policy is, but one of the assistant district attorneys had explained that to me, and I said, well, then that needs to change. Did it change? I don't actually know. What I know is that I met with a lot of uh, different levels of district attorneys and got various kinds of agreements about how, well, if you confirm that someone actually is a member of a syringe exchange program, we'll drop the charges and that kind of thing. But I don't actually know what their internal policies were. But initially, their internal policies did not reflect the changes in, in uh, syringe possession that, that uh, needle exchange programs had already created. And that was back in 1994, When did you first meet Alan Clear? I met Alan Clear, uh, I believe that the day I first met Alan was the day I f we first went and took uh, a bunch of... Uh, that I was first involved in taking a bunch of used syringes down to the city health department. Remember that when uh, when syringe exchange was quote underground and, and not legal, we did not have resources. We we were strapped just to get syringes and waste containers, and we were using plastic water cooler bottles and that kind of thing uh, uh, to to put the the used syringes in. And once a month or once every couple of months, well, we would have all these plastic boxes and water cooler bottles and things like that filled with used syringes. And uh, one day I remember uh, agreeing to meet some other people a couple blocks from where I live here. Uh, and we all got in a car, and Alan Clear was one of the people. And we drove down to 125 Worth Street. And at that time, there was very little security. We went in with these uh, uh, waste containers and water cooler bottles. And left them on the desks of of, uh, of the health department and walked back out again because that was, uh, um, we didn't have any other way to get rid of these used syringes. It wasn't long before, and that's how I believe that I met Alan Clear on a morning where we did that. And uh, it wasn't long after that that the city health department uh, offered, well, bring them to this place up on First Avenue and we'll get rid of them for you. And so we stopped leaving them <laughs> on people's <laughs> desks. That that resulted. That was very effective. Let's put it that way. 
the city was was very willing to be responsive to our need for better disposal resources. Now, when did you first uh, start shifting from one-to-one syringe exchange to syringes on demand? Well, the, even when it was uh, uh, underground, we never did one for one. But we gave, but there were all kinds of limits anyway. We would give you uh, two extra. So if you came with nothing, you could get two. And uh, but we had a limit of ten, so that if you came with nothing, uh, with ten syringes to exchange, you got twelve, because that was all the syringes we had. I mean, you know, the, we did not have a lot of syringes to exchange back. So that's what it started with on the Lower East Side when it became legal. There were, you could get uh, two extra. Um, and that rapidly moved up to five extra, and that was through the work of uh, Alan Clear and the evaluators from uh, from uh, um, Beth Israel and also St. Anne's and a number of programs up in the Bronx when the evidence came out that we were dealing with a lot of cocaine injectors who were, you know, a heroin injector may... Uh, inject three to four times a day, but a a cocaine injector, if they're on a run, they may be injecting, you know, 15 to 30 times in a run, and all we were doing was giving them, you know, 12 syringes or something like that, and so we were able to up the number of extra syringes you could get for nothing to five, and it stayed at five for years. Um, And I think after I left the Lower East Side in... uh, um, 1997, it was still five. Eventually, it went up to ten. And very gradually, the counting requirements shifted until now uh, programs are pretty much, it's it's a judgment call. You're not, you know, people don't have to count out their syringes one by one anymore. The count, it, people don't have to count their potentially infectious waste for you anymore, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. such a preposterous idea in the first place. There's no more waste counting. If you come with your syringes in a container, no one is asked. We used to have to say, tell people that they would have to open it up, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of stuff, and dump the syringes out and count them. But this is insane. They had people that actually disposed of their syringes safely and put them in a container. And we were saying, do the opposite of what is <laughs> rational and hygienic and open up that container so that we can count it just to make sure you don't get too many syringes in an epidemic which is based on a shortage of syringes. Okay, anyway, enough of my ranting about the insanity of one for one. Um, we It went up to 10 extra and then 20 extra over uh, between 1997 and, say, you know, the end of 2003 or 2004. And then eventually the state simply said, well, you know, it's, it's at the discretion of the program, basically. You have to have policies and procedures about it. Every, every program has to say, well, here's how we do it. Here's our counting protocol. Here's how we decide how many syringes to give someone who has nothing. Here's how many syringes we decide extra syringes we decide to give someone who brings syringes back. But it's all basically based on, you know, the judgment of uh, of the program at the time and based much more on a, a needs assessment dialogue. The bulk of syringes that go out um, through syringe exchange programs still go out for actual exchange. Um, and uh, that, that hasn't changed in the 20 years that the programs have existed, that people who get large numbers of syringes are returning those syringes to the program. They bring 
bring them back in the waste containers the program gave to them. Um, what has changed is not not the fact that people are exchanging syringes, but what's basically been removed are the counting requirements, you know, especially when people have already disposed of them safely. We no longer like ask people to open up those waste containers or ask them to shake them out of the, the, the plastic bottles or whatever it is they may have put them in. We eyeball it. We say, oh, it looks like 100. Is that 100? Yes, it's 100. Okay, here's 100. That's That's basically how it works now. Tell me a little bit about the difference between a walkabout and the storefront exchange. Wow. Um, walkabout is kind of unique. There are a couple other programs in the city that do uh, uh, something similar to the walkabout. But, okay, there's a storefront, and the storefront has is authorized to do exchange during specific hours at that storefront. Every When you become legal to do needle exchange in New York State... It's all based on times and places. So the Lower East Side Needle Exchange Program is authorized to do, you know, okay, on Mondays from 10 to 12 and blah, blah, blah. It's all it's all fixed. You don't do needle exchange outside of those hours and outside of that place. Every needle exchange program generally also has some kind of outreach. And usually, for instance, if you're at St. Anne's in the Bronx or New York Harm Reduction Educators in the Bronx, positive health project here in New York City, it means you go to a specific location, you know, on the street at a specific time, and that is where you will do needle exchange. Now, the walkabout is different because uh, even though we're authorized, I still say we, I haven't worked for the Lower East Side in 15 years, but I still say we, even though we're authorized to do walkabout exchange during specific hours, the actual location is not fixed. It's roving. In other words, you we can actually be going from one place to another or discreetly doing needle exchange with people that we encounter as we're going from one place to another rather than it being a fixed location. But ultimately, it's street outreach. It's doing needle exchange uh, on the Lower East Side, you know, uh, 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 outside of the storefront. And I think it's interesting, you know, uh, the community board, which was so up in arms once upon a time about the existence of the needle exchange, really was never very aware of what we were actually doing out on the streets. Because the walkabout is, you know, it, it it's a professional operation, but it's also pretty discreet and not particularly scandalous. The people in the neighborhoods where the walkabout goes have never been bothered by the fact that the walkabout is is going to those locations. The needle, you know, the, during the days, which was back in the 90s, it hasn't happened in a while, during the days that the community board was upset about Lower East Side operations, it was about the storefront. And because the the walkabout has always been very professional and discreet. What is peer-delivered exchange? Peer-delivered exchange. Peer-delivered exchange is uh, um, another way that the state has, has attempted to uh, be more flexible uh, in how syringe exchange happens. That until peer-delivered exchange came along, um, again, you know, it was about authorized sites and hours. You can do, you know, this program is doing syringe exchange on Wednesday from 11 to 2 and on Thursday from 6 to 9 or whatever it may be, and that's when it is legal for it to happen. Peer-delivered exchange means we're actually taking people who use the needle exchange themselves giving them training, giving them stipends, 
giving them syringes and waste containers and saying, go forth, you know, and, and do needle exchange with your network of drug users and then, then bring back, you know, the waste containers and we'll give you uh, more sterile syringes and more waste containers. So essentially it's taking needle exchange participants themselves and, and supporting them in expanding the reach of the program to people who aren't coming to the program. That's what peer-delivered exchange is. Not all programs uh, do peer-delivered exchange that way, but that's that's the rationale behind the model, is that it's expanding uh, the reach of the program sort of outside of doing needle exchange during fixed times and locations. Okay, we're going to be wrapping up pretty soon, so what would you like to leave us with? I would like to leave you guys, I guess, with uh, the fact that um, it's drug users themselves who have turned this epidemic around, that it was very important that we established needle exchange programs. But what that is is reversing bad policy. The drug users have always been perfectly willing, drug injectors have always been perfectly willing to use sterile injection equipment if they have access to it. We started with one out of every two drug injectors in New York City being infected with HIV back in 1992 when we became legal. And today in 2012, almost 2013 now, it is, it is less than one in every 10 drug injectors who has HIV. And many of those people are people who were infected before needle exchange existed. So that, and what I would say is the willingness of the drug injectors themselves come to needle exchange programs and use the resources that needle exchange programs offer that has made uh, the programs effective. It's not the fact that the programs existed. It's the drug users who took the inch we gave them and made a mile out of it and stopped an epidemic. We started, it wasn't just an epidemic. The, you know, the house was on fire. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Fire was put out and fire extinguishers were put in place, and now we have essentially safety where before there was chaos. And I would say that it was the drug injectors themselves who made that happen. The programs, could we could only open our doors and say, here we are. And people came in front of the entire world into our doors, risked you know, their reputations, all that kind of thing came in and started getting sterile syringes and reversing the epidemic and protecting their families and communities. It was the drug injectors themselves. Well, thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Donald Grove. My pleasure. Thank you, Ken. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Come back next week. We'll have another fascinating guest. I haven't booked anyone yet, but we will book someone before the next show. Next Thursday, same time.